Hi, Simon here. And before we get to this week's episode, I just wanted to tell you about our Black Friday course offer, where for one week only, we're offering you our comprehensive online only SUP safety course for 50% off. And that's a huge reduction down to £18.50 for lifetime access. It's full of instructor-led videos, quizzes and downloads with the key information you need to know and it's designed to help you weigh up and make the right decisions as you get on the water. The aim of the course is to give new or intermediate paddlers the help you need to become more self-sufficient. It's all useful stuff and it covers tides, conditions, weather, water flow, planning, cold water kit, beach safety and a whole lot more. This is an offer we only do over Black Friday week. So don't miss out on this 50% offer and you can claim it by going to supfmpodcast.com forward slash course and by using the code BF50. So that's supfmpodcast.com forward slash course using the code BF50 for 50% off and that offer ends at midnight on Tuesday, the 30th of November, 2021. Okay, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, I'm Nick. Welcome back to SUP FM for another podcast. Today, we're going to talk to Cal Major. And in her own words, she says, I'm an ocean advocate, veterinary surgeon, and adventure seeker, passionate about connecting people to our oceans and protecting the ecosystems and animals within them. I do this through speaking, presenting, campaigning, writing, and films. In 2018, Cal became the first person to paddle Land's End to John O'Groats in the United Kingdom. This classic British long-distance journey took her 59 days. Her route took her along the Cornish and Devon coast, north into the Bristol Channel, up the River Severn, and by canal all the way up to Blackpool, by sea around Cumbria, and the Mull of Galloway, which we talk about in great detail, across the Firth of Clyde to Arran, along the whole of the Caledonian Canal, which basically splits Scotland in two, this beautiful northeastern trajectory, and up the coast of the northeast of Scotland. So what she also says, Land's End to John O'Groats is a popular route with cyclists and walkers. In fact, it's been completed in almost every mode of transport imaginable, including skateboarding, I think, by Mr. Dave Cornthwaite. But it had never been completed before on a stand-up paddleboard. The route took in 1,000 miles, the entire length of mainland Great Britain, end-to-end, from Cornwall to the north of Scotland. Cal completed the expedition in 59 days, as we said, becoming the first person in history to do so and setting a world record for the fastest time. It was actually delightful to chat to her. It really is amazing to hear her experiences. And um, we talk a lot about um, her journey based around the film that she made called Vitamin C afterwards. And it's just been released on Vimeo. So you can go and rent it there for four euros, 50 or, or a couple of pounds. I'm not sure. But um, it would be amazing if you could actually go and watch that. Um, we'll drop all the links into the show notes. And um, Cal, you can see it from Cal's website, calmajor.com. But it'd be great if you could support her because she's done imaginable things and really, really top draw stuff. So well done, Cal. Here she is. Aloha and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Here are your hosts, Nick and Simon. Hey, Cal, thanks so much for joining us on the SUP FM podcast. We're really, really great to have you here. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me along. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Where are you right now at the moment? Because, I mean, obviously all this crazy stuff's going on in the world with COVID-19. 
I am currently sat in my little house in Devon and I can see the sea from my house and the waves are beautiful and it's almost like torture because we're not meant to go surfing <laughs> but I'm um, feeling very very fortunate to be in Devon because there's a lot of green space and um, it's a, a really beautiful part of the world. I feel very very lucky to be here. Oh that's fantastic so you can at least get out for a few walks and cycles maybe if not oh, paddleboarding. Yeah. Oh, I've not been paddleboarding. Um, the RNLI have kind of advised people not to go on the water um, which is fair enough I think at this point in time so I'm focusing more on cycling I'm doing a bit of mountain biking a little bit of running when I absolutely have to um, and some nice long coast path walks um, so really apart from being able to get in the water it yeah as I say I'm, I'm really really fortunate to be here and I, and I really feel for anybody who's stuck in an apartment at this point in time so I'm sending love to anybody who is stuck in an apartment without outdoor space at this point in time. Yeah, I echo that sentiment as well because we've got a lovely outdoor space down here in Portugal. So mm. I'm also very grateful for that. But yeah, imagine living in an apartment must be really tough yeah. at times like this. Yeah. But hey, let's go back, um, back in time. Mm -hmm. So what is life like growing up? Growing up? Um, well, my childhood might be a little bit different to how people expected. I grew up in a town called Warrington in the UK, in the, in the northwest of England, which is right between Manchester and Liverpool. So two massive cities, and my house that I grew up in um, was in a in a very big town right in between those. So I wasn't by the sea. Um, I wasn't right on the doorstep of amazing mountains. We, we were never too far away from outdoor space. So my mum and dad, so we, we moved to Warrington for, for my dad's work. Um, but my dad you know, from a young age has been a, a really big fan of the outdoors and my grandma instilled a very adventurous spirit into him. And he brought us up with, with that adventurous spirit as well. So whenever we weren't at school, we were on holiday, either camping in Wales or climbing mountains, being dragged up Snowdon um, and, and outside in the fresh air a lot. Um, so from the first, I don't know, maybe 15 years, I wasn't hugely into the sea I really really enjoyed you know going camping by the sea with, with my family but um I wouldn't say that I spent every every waking moment in the sea do anything do anything stand out from those outdoor experiences with with your family when you were a kid like did you say climbing Mount Snowden or something yeah. what else stood out I, well I, I remember every boxing day after Christmas they'd, they'd take us on this massive hike and I, I find it really I find it really amusing now to think that as kids, you know, we'd really protest about being taken for a walk. And now I'm the first one to get people outside and get them out for a walk. Um, <laughs> the tables have really turned. But um, I think the, the, probably the trips that stand out the most are our trips down to the seaside, down to North Wales. We spent a lot of time um, yeah, camping in North Wales in a place called Abbasock. And there was loads of um, water water sports to do there, and I was just, oh god, I just remember, yeah, spending hours in that campsite in the sunshine or in the rain. It didn't really matter because we were, we were right by the sea, and I think that probably actually looking back was um, quite formative. Thinking about it, um, mm. yeah, really, really fond memories. Excellent. So, how did you get into SUP? Was it on one of those holidays that you got into SUP? I mean, can you remember the very first time that you jumped on a board? I can remember it. And no, it wasn't It wasn't back then. So back then, um, for me, stand-up paddleboarding only really came into my consciousness maybe six or seven years ago. Um, the first time I went stand-up paddleboarding was uh, I moved down to Devon uh, um, for work, for a job. So um, I had a, uh, I'm a veterinary surgeon and there was a, 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 a locum position down in, in South Devon. 
And I was only meant to be there for three months. It was meant to be a three-month position, and then I was going to move on. I had plans to move to Australia. Um, but I moved in with a with a bunch of guys. Um, it, was a, it was a really cheap place. Uh, it was only meant to be for three months. I moved in with these guys, and they were water sport fanatics. And I, I'd been surfing for a few years by that point in time. I loved surfing, but I'd never been stand-up paddleboarding. And when they first told me about it, I was like, what? <laughs> stand on a glorified surfboard and paddle like why don't you just go kayaking um and then one day on the perfect perfect Devon summer's day um I went down to the coast with these guys and borrowed one of their boards and I remember the first time standing on that board and thinking oh my goodness I suddenly understand what what all the fuss is about this is nothing like kayaking I'm standing tall above the water I can see everything in the water um I just felt so free and so um powerful not in a kind of macho way but you I mean you know that feeling when you're standing tall and you just feel like a warrior and I was well chuffed with myself and I was paddling along and I remember this boat came past this big yacht came past with um, about five or six people on the deck all having gin or whatever and I felt well smug with myself because I was standing on my paddleboard and uh, <laughs> they went past and I waved and promptly fell straight into the water <laughs> so that was my um, first experience of falling in as well and it didn't put me off I, I just I, I just completely fell for it and from that moment on uh, the first thing I did was went and I bought my own inflatable board and every single time that the conditions allowed and I wasn't at work I was exploring the coastline off having picnics um going to places I'd never been before is that what drew you to it the the sense of exploration that you can go somewhere where you've never really been before and see it from a completely different angle yeah definitely yeah the, just the the, the the freedom of it the, the whole freedom around it you're not sat down you're not locked into anything you're just standing up you can move around on the board but also the idea that I could get to places like I was obsessed with this coastline I'd never never been to Devon before for and I was obsessed with exploring every nook and cranny of it I, I absolutely fell in love with it and as it happens I fell in love with the southwest so much that was six years ago and I still live there now that three-month locum position turned into a six-month a six-year love affair with with the southwest of, of England and you know I've moved jobs but it's just and I think that I think that kind of feeling of connection to that place that I lived through exploring it through surf was what what's kept me here well, I had exactly the same experience down here in the Algarve in Portugal I mean when I first had my paddleboard I also explored every nook and cranny of the coastline I eventually just did the whole section of coastline just to try and see exactly what was there oh wow it's it's amazing isn't it and and I love how it's so different on different days. You can have a really, really beautiful sunny day and it can be absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, you're seeing barrel jellyfish five meters below you. And then you can have a really cloudy gray day and everything feels kind of moody. And you can be in exactly the same geographical location, but it can feel like you're in a different world. I I love that about um, being out on the water. Did you start doing longer trips and leading up to doing the longest trip ever? (laughs) <laughs> yeah um, yeah so I obviously really liked paddleboarding and I was doing a lot of surfing a lot of paddling and was starting to find plastic on all the beaches that I went to um you know my favorite favorite beaches and I was doing a lot of voluntary work at that time with a charity called Surfers Against Sewage running community beach cleans and I loved that kind of light bulb moment when people would at a beach clean, you know, you'd pick up a plastic bottle and, and connect that to maybe a bottle that they'd 
bought full of water earlier in the day and be able to kind of help empower people to understand where they could make a positive difference in their life regarding plastic pollution um and I felt so passionately about it and there wasn't much in the media at the time when I first started campaigning about this uh, about five or six years ago um there wasn't much in the media and everything that was there seemed to be very negative very um shaming and you know really doom and gloomy um and I wanted to deliver a positive message to people um and so I basically combined my love of paddleboarding with my obsession with plastic pollution, excuse me, and um, decided that I was going to paddle around the whole of the Cornish coast. Um, and I was so naive, like completely naive. <laughs> when was this, like 2016? 20, yeah, 2016. I was so naive. Like, I had no idea what a paddleboarding expedition actually um you know what it what it consisted of I just loved paddleboarding and didn't quite realize that you know the, the five miles I was doing on a nice day exploring did not translate to 30 miles in a headwind with fog and massive waves that I would be doing for two weeks or three weeks sorry getting around the Cornish coast but I, I just loved it and I loved the challenge and I loved all the learning learning about the tides and I was feeling more and more connected to the ocean which meant so much to me um and then the following year after that, I paddled completely solo around the Isle of Skye in Scotland. Um, so that took about two weeks. And that was one of the most, I think that was the most formative expedition of all of them, really, because for two weeks, I was completely immersed in that environment, had nobody to, you know, bounce decisions off, no no phone signal, um, really looking after myself. And um, I got into some pretty sticky situations. But finding the kind of strength to get out of those was so empowering. And that, I don't know, that just filled me with the kind of knowledge, respect for the ocean and confidence to, to do the big trip. Were you completely on your own on that trip? Yeah, completely on my own. Yeah, for two weeks. But is that the, is that the, the film as a result of that trip? Um, so, sky. Yes, sky's the limit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you actually filmed that yourself. I mean, I haven't seen it. I just saw a trailer, but it's got some beautiful drone scenes in the in the, in the beginning there. Yeah. So. so I I did the trip, um, finished the trip, filmed it myself, did really dodgy GoPro filming, um, had a semi-professional camera, but didn't really know how to use it, but managed to get enough footage to what I, <laughs> I thought I was going to be able to put a film together from the footage that I got. Two days after I finished the trip, I met a filmmaker who was a friend of a friend who came up to the Isle of Skye to help support me and, and to do some photos. Um, this was all after I'd finished the trip. And um, I was so proud of my footage. I was like, here's the footage that I've got here. You know, good luck making a film. <laughs> he took one look at it. It was like, nah, this, does not, this is not going to make a film. So um, we actually spent a couple of days um, just driving around the island um, you know, I'd get back on the water and we'd recreate certain parts of the trip um, just to get that beautiful, engaging footage. Um, so, and, so when you watch the film, there's a lot about plastic and there's a lot about connection to the ocean. When you watch the film, you'll know which is my footage. Uh, mine's the very raw, authentic stuff. And then there's some beautiful, beautiful scenic um, drone footage around the coastline. And honestly, I, I, I think that's one of the, I think it is the most beautiful place I've ever paddled. Really, it is. Wow. Is that the same filmmaker you used in Vitamin C? Exactly. He's now my boyfriend. <laughs> oh, excellent. Really handy. Yeah, very handy. Yeah, we, we connected over that film. <laughs> uh. Well, kudos to him. I mean, there's some spectacular, spectacular shots. And I was, as I was watching the film, like leaping to vitamin C, I was just thinking about, wow, how did you get all these amazing shots? So, but anyway, we'll get into that later. Um, so, if we can start with the expedition itself. Now, what what 
drove you to thinking that you could actually paddle from Land's End to John O'Groats? Because no one's ever done this before, obviously. Uh so I remember years and years ago sitting down at the kitchen table with my dad when I was visiting home and I'd just got into paddleboarding and I was really excited about the idea of doing these expeditions. I think it was after the Cornwall trip and um, or maybe just before the Cornwall trip, actually. I, th- I think it was before the Cornwall trip and I was looking at this map and thinking, how can I get from Land's End to John O'Groats and a sup? And we were looking at all the waterways, the inland waterways, because at that point in time, I didn't realise that you could actually do an ocean expedition on a paddleboard. Um and we decided that it was absolutely ridiculous and come on, let, let's just paddle around Cornwall instead, <laughs> So, um, which turned out to be uh, intense enough as it was. Um, but I think over the years and years of doing these expeditions and learning about my own strength and, and my own kind of mental resilience and just how far my body can go in response to my mind asking it to do that and also learning so much about the, the oceans and um, being very humbled by them on several occasions – I, I thought, you know, what, this is this is possible actually, and I I really wanted. So going back to the sort of plastic message, um, I really wanted to look at the positive stuff happening the whole length of the UK to tackle plastic pollution um, in order to inspire other positive change, um, and so that's why I wanted to to go the whole length of the UK to to kind of say, you know, whatever you know whatever small thing you feel you can do in your community that's phenomenal look at all this stuff that's happening the whole the, in the whole of the UK as well to try and help people to see that actually that you know this this is a a, a very exciting movement to be part of um so and that was the kind of the primary motivation behind it and then um a bit further down the line it, it became a fundraising trip as well okay and so how much time did you spend preparing for this because wh- when did you go around cornwall was that in that was in 2016 right? that was in 2016 so um probably first started thinking about it in 2014 when i first started paddleboarding um and it's i, I don't know it's interesting to think back I'm a very spontaneous person and I, I don't really like planning too far ahead. So it's very kind of grounding for me to think that actually just how long it took to, to, to really properly get ready for that expedition without even knowing that that's what I was doing in some ways. So when you started off at Land's End, um, you had a complication with the tidal race around there. How do you actually prepare for, for seeing tidal races? Did you pick them up before and did you ask people along before when you were preparing to see where which areas were, were dangerous and which weren't? Yeah, definitely. So I've, I've paddled around Land's End before and um, I knew it was a pretty gnarly um, tidal race. Um, I had... So there's a really amazing guy called Glenn Brackenbury who kayaked Land's End to John O'Groats, It's a fairly similar route to the one that I did. And he was so wonderful at helping me with the tides for, for, my, for my trip. Um, I had a lot of kind of tech, a lot of um, uh, tide charts and that kind of thing to try and work out exactly what the timing was going to be. And to my knowledge, when I went out at Land's End, I'd mitigated all the um, possible scenarios I, I thought that I'd work the tides out correctly I thought that it was going to be plain sailing and <clears throat> excuse me and I, I didn't anticipate actually getting into trouble with that tidal race so um again you know the, the first day of the trip it it was very in, interestingly humbling to have the ocean turn around and say you know just just take take a minute you know you're, you're, you're not um you're, you're not invincible here love uh, so yeah it was it was it was yeah pretty humbling let's talk a little bit about tidal races because for those of you guys out there who are listening and don't aren't familiar with the uk i mean obviously you've got a massive tidal variation there don't you it's something like isn't it something like 10 meters or something it can be yeah on, on big spring tides so basically 
in the UK, you've got, um, if you can picture the UK up the west coast of the island, when the tide floods in, the tide moves in um, up the coast of the, the west coast of of the UK. Um, but it also floods, when the tide floods in, it, it flows along the uh, south coast of the UK from the west to the east. And that's a very um, very simplified explanation of the tides. So at Land's End, which is the most southwesterly point, you've basically got um, the tide splitting. So it goes up, but it also goes across the south coast. Um, and also with that, you've got loads of jaggedy headlands, lots of localised eddies, and um, the tides can go in all sorts of different directions. So the idea was to is, was to hit Land's End at slack tide when the tidal movement was at its absolute minimum. Um, but it, it just got it completely wrong and it was it was impossible and I ended up caught in a tidal race that was heading out into the Atlantic um and yeah really really got into trouble it was it was pretty pretty terrifying to be honest did you did you make it out on your own um no I didn't so I had a very difficult decision to make in that point in time because I told myself and I told myself on all my expeditions if I ever have to call the coast guard out then I'm not carrying on because i I'd feel incredibly irresponsible to do so. Sure. Um, and so I was there on my first day of the expedition. I was paddling against this tidal race. Every ounce of effort I had to try and beat this 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 race, to try and keep paddling north against the flow, which was pulling me out south and and, um, and towards the west. Um, and I was getting completely exhausted. I wasn't moving. I was literally paddling at my absolute maximum and remaining stationary. And um, in that kind of moment of exhaustion, I had to decide, do I do I radio the Coast Guard um, or, you know, what do I do? If I, do I keep paddling because there's a chance that I could break out of this this tidal race, you know, whatever the optimist um, or, or do I call the Coast Guard? And um, at the very last minute, just when I was, you know, I, I, I had to give up. I was so exhausted after about an hour of paddling against this tidal race. Um, a fishing boat saw me. They were out checking the pots and they, they came and um, picked me up, literally dragged me onto the boat. Um, I was on the verge of collapse. And um, fortunately, the whole boat were R and Alive volunteers when they weren't fishing. <laughs> um, and um, they were amazing. I was, you know, I was expecting to have to be given you know ever telling off or being told that what what on earth are you doing you stupid woman you're at land's end on your own but they were amazing and I told them what I was doing and they were very very supportive and helped me work out the tides to go out again the next day and uh, amazingly they themselves said that the tides were wrong compared to what the tide tables were telling them as well so that made me feel a little bit better that I hadn't just completely worked it out wrong that there was actually a bit of an abnormality there well what a start to the trip and I, mean, I know it must have been quite daunting actually <laughs> it's like, did you think oh god fag this I'm not going to carry on yes at all. yeah I did I was like, well that's it then <laughs> um unfortunately my, my boyfriend was there with me James he was there and um you know, the, the first few hours, I was like, oh, well, I'm so embarrassed. That was so ridiculous. Why, who on earth do I think I am to be able to take on a challenge like this? Um, and I was like, well, do you know what? That's it. Game over. And then actually going back to the RNLI station a few hours later and having a good chat with them. And they, they, they just made no big deal out of it. Like, oh, well, you know, it happens. We picked up some kayakers earlier the day. Let's let's figure out a better plan for tomorrow. Um, and there was no kind of even hint of uh, suggestion that I should stop and, and not carry on. They were so supportive of what, what I was doing. So that felt really um, 
yeah i was very very grateful for that well that's amazing because that's another question that i wanted to have is is what are what are the legalities of paddling on the ocean and and also what is your relationship with the was the rnli or the coast guard or which which department was it yeah so the legalities of paddling in the ocean i mean as far as i know anybody can paddle in the ocean um from a kind of practical point of view i think it would be very irresponsible to paddle in the ocean without safety measures and without um experience um so my, i had a lot of safety measures on me even though i didn't have a boat and i didn't always have anyone on the water with me i had a vhf radio i had a, a gps tracker which the coast guard had a link to i had a mobile phone i had flares life vest tow rope um a plb which is a, a personal locator beacon so if i got into real trouble and couldn't communicate I just press a button and it sends a distress signal out to the Coast Guard and my exact GPS location. So although a lot of those things are relying on external help from the Coast Guard um, or the RNLI, then, uh, um, you know, I, I at least had those modalities available to me. Um, the RNLI, the, the, um, they deal mostly with sort of more uh, inshore emergencies so things just off the beach the coast guard i i called the coast guard every morning before i went out on the water and i called them every evening when i got back to land um to let them know that i was safe and to let them know what i was doing um, and several times there were members of the public on the coast path who would phone the coast guard um and let them know that they'd seen a lone paddleboarder out in the water um oftentimes you know just just being good citizens alerting to the coast guard to the fact that there might be someone who's in a bit of trouble but because i'd called them previously they knew it was me and they could call me and check that I was all right um oh, and I'd oftentimes yeah. chat to the guys if I was going out from the beach I'd chat to the RNLI guys that were on the beach and just let them know what I was doing and kind of get their inside info and, and local knowledge which was, was so vital to have local knowledge mm -hmm. definitely absolutely yeah and so what kind of support did you have on with you I mean did you and your boyfriend go up the whole way together and did he film a lot as well so most of the time I was out on the water on my own um James is a runner he's a very very good runner so he would spend a lot of time running along the coast path um he put you know to have the, the drone in the air on the coast path when he's running um I'd say James was there for about 50 or 60 percent of the trip um support supporting me with with my camper van on land um actually on the water as I said most of the paddling I, I did on my own there were a few days up in Scotland that James came and paddled with me in a kayak so that he could film from the water um and that was it, it made for a very different experience sort of day to day whether I was on my own or whether I had James with me um but I was I was healing a, a big wound um during the trip I'd, I'd I was healing a, 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 I was going through grief basically for the loss of one of my, my be very best friends and um, mm -hmm. actually having time on the water on my own was, was quite beneficial for that so I didn't begrudge the days when I was on my own I didn't feel like I needed someone there with me and I feel sure. very uh, capable out on, on the water so I, I didn't feel intimidated by, by being out there on my own Excellent. And I think you mentioned that quite a lot in the film as well. So it comes across really well. Thank you. Um, how did you sleep? Did you, you said you, you mentioned a camper van. Was that going with you all the time? Because obviously you didn't take a tent along with you on the board. Uh, I did actually take a tent. So um, whenever I was out on the ocean, most of the time I'd have a dry bag with at least a bivy bag and a sleeping bag or a tent um, and some emergency rations just in case I had to pull in at a cove and spend the night there if the, the conditions changed. 
Um, there were quite a few nights that I wild camped, especially up in Scotland, just slept on beaches. or um, And I, I love that side of an expedition. That's my favourite part yeah. of an expedition. I was just about to say, isn't that the best, the best part of it? Yeah. Which <laughs> I think is why I loved the, the Isle of Skye trip so much was because I was camping every night and foraging for food and, and water and just felt really free. Um, I love that. I love it when you wake up and you can see the stars or, you know, you wake up and you're outdoors. I, I think it's so special. Um with this trip, my initial plan was to camp the whole way up, and I soon learned that. So I was trying to paddle the length of the UK, raise money for charity, and wild camp, and forage for my own food, and not have any support on the water. And and I, I went into it very stubbornly, determined to be independent. And very soon realised that I couldn't do all of that without support. Um, so I did have land support most of the way. James was there with my camper van for probably 50% of it and maybe a bit more actually, uh, 60% of it. And I'd sleep in my van. There were times when um, my, my brother or my mum and dad, they've both got camper vans as well. Occasionally they'd come and join me somewhere and I'd, I'd stay in their van or, you know, I'd be camping and they'd sort of camp next to me and bring me some food or whatever. Um, and there were times when I also... Um, stayed with people I'd never met before and I've made some of my really closest friends from doing that people who just reached out and wanted to support that was really special actually being able to share the journey with just such kind strangers who had had the same passions as me and wanted to be a part of it um but but it was really nice having a mixture of all the three I think and it, it definitely helped me to appreciate the times when I was on my own camping on my own and sort of having that kind of sense of peace and space mm -hmm. that's fantastic if you could pick any spot on the entire journey which was the most beautiful for you oh I think it would have to be the northeast oh. coast of Scotland I, I just loved it up there so between Inverness and John O'Groats is this stretch of coastline which has massive cliffs like enormous cliffs the whole way along so it's a bit of a commitment to paddle there because there aren't many places to, to to come out off the water um but the cliffs are lined with um seabirds and when i paddled past there were there were just thousands upon thousands of puffins and razorbills and guillemots and the gannets and it was it, it was so special um I th Scotland in general is my favourite country in the world. I think paddling there is so phenomenally special. But this place in particular, I think the, the kind of contrast between the, these very dramatic cliffs and the beautiful, the, the, you know, the water was really calm there um, at that point in time and, and having all that wildlife surrounding me that just didn't, like couldn't care less that I was there because you're quite quiet on a sup, aren't you? And they just couldn't care less mm. that I was there. So they were just cracking on and I was able to be a part of that for a short time. It was very special. <clears throat> Excellent. How about the Caledonian Canal? Just put the stretch before that. I mean, that that sounds absolutely beautiful as well. Oh, is it? Yeah, it is phenomenal. Yeah, really, really beautiful. I would recommend anybody to paddle there. So the week that I, I think I got across it in two days actually. But the, the 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 days that I was paddling it were really lovely weather. There was one day I went through Loch Ness and it was so hot um I had to change my t-shirt three times because I was just dripping in sweat it was so hot um but I've heard stories of the weather being so horrific there and because obviously it's lined by um mountains the the wind just funnels through it so I've heard stories of waves on on Loch Ness um so I think I was very very fortunate with the conditions I had um up mm. there in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly looked idyllic from the film. Yeah. We were kind of going backwards here. So we were starting and, and going back down to the mull of Gaw of Galloway. Yes. That, that sounded like a really dicey section. So can you just tell us a little bit what went down there? 
Yeah, so the Mull of Galloway was one of, you, you know, you're asking before about these tidal races in the UK. Um, there's a lot of mm-hmm. tidal movement around the UK and the tidal races form when there's a headland, so a sticky out bit where the water has to flow a lot faster around it. And the Mull of Galloway is on the southwest point of Scotland and um, the water flowing up the channel there, excuse me, <clears throat> There are basically nine different tidal races, nine different tides that meet at that point. And so the water there is very confused, is very, very fast moving. It forms standing waves. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and um, so from the word go, that was one of the sections that I was particularly worried about because um, it's just so exposed to, to tides and also to wind. There's just no shelter there. Um, and I was approaching it, and as I was approaching it, sort of every day I'd be checking the forecast for a few days' time to see what kind of window I might have to get round there because not only did I need the tides to be absolutely pinpoint perfect, um, but I also needed um, the wind to be uh, okay as well. And I was kind of re- reached the nearest point that I was going to get to, which was 20 miles away and um, was desperately trying to find a tidal window. And the only one I could find was at three o'clock in the morning, the following morning. Oh. And um, being 20 miles away, that meant setting off at 11 o'clock at night, just after it got pitch black and paddling through the night towards this horrendously scary headland um, and hoping to God that the tides were going to be all right and that I was going to get around the other the other side. And it was honestly, this, yeah, it was the scariest thing, thing I'd ever done. Was that must have been terrifying? <laughs> so scary it was so scary um and i don't know when when it's dark your mind plays tricks on you as well doesn't it so i kept kind of looking into the water and imagining like a a sea creature just rising up out of the black like a big eye just coming out of the depths or something um it's also tricky to keep your balance at night isn't it especially uh, if there's a bit of chop around definitely and it was quite choppy actually at that point in time because the the wind forecast was only just marginally okay um so it was there was quite a lot of water movement so I, i i knelt down pretty much the whole way around the mull of galloway um which is it's fine for a couple of hours but you know i was on kneeling down for six or seven hours um so that was yeah it's quite uh, yeah it was it was physically and emotionally very challenging that section yeah but i I, I, sorry i I, just gonna say i even though that was really really terrifying i think that having done that it 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 expanded my comfort zone so much and, and that final week of paddling up that beautiful stretch of the northeast coast of scotland that i was mentioning earlier for a week then i had to paddle at night time to to get the tides right and I found that section rather than terrifying like the Mull of Galloway because I'd you know expanded my comfort zone to include night paddling I found that section exhilarating and, and beautiful and, and it, it really kind of I don't know it's opened up a whole new world for me now the, the idea of night paddling <laughs> yeah I mean I've only done it once or twice and it's very very disorientating in the beginning it's mm. really odd um so um, so you, are you t- going out in specific night paddles these days? No, no. But <laughs> what I mean by that is, if, you know, if I have to, if you have to, yeah, sure. So were there any other parts of the journey that were that were pretty demanding and and um, where you felt, wow, this is the edge of my limits? Um, I think surprisingly, the the canals inland. So um, the journey basically was it was a thousand miles, eight hundred miles was on the ocean, and about two hundred miles was inland on canals. And I did that section to try and relate the plastic pollution inland to what's going on out to sea. Um, and I found it so challenging. Um, on the canals, you can stop anywhere. There's always a bank that you can stop at. 
Um, and so the temptation just to stop when I was exhausted was was really hard to fight against. And the motivation to keep paddling was it just had to come from me was when you're on the ocean you've got um tides to 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 chase and you've got uh wind forecasts to chase and so the adrenaline that keeps you going keeps you moving for those kind of six to eight hours that you're on the water for each set each stretch um is driven by the conditions as, as well as your own motivation whereas when and, and you know if you're on the ocean and you're still three miles from your destination you, you can't just stop and have a cup of tea you have to get to, to land to, to camp for the night or whatever whereas on the canals I had an idea of how far I wanted to go each day but it was up to me to, to do that and I could quite easily just stop and say now nah, I'm done for the day um and I also found that you know that the ocean's my place that's where I feel most alive that's why I do ocean expeditions is because I feel really really joyful there Whereas the canals, sometimes I was paddling through busy cities and they weren't as inspiring for me as the ocean. And there's a lot of stuff that I was seeing, which was, was quite hard and, you know, a lot of pollution. And, and um, yeah, it was really, mm. really tough going. Because for me, the immediate picture of a canal is this beautiful wooden wooded sort of area with lovely, lovely, beautiful vistas and things. But you're right, I suppose a lot of it is industrial and, mm-hmm. and not so not so pleasant. There are some gorgeous parts of the canals, you know, don't get me wrong. There and, and some parts I felt so much peace that, you know, there were birds on the side of the on the side of the canal and ducks on the water. But yeah, definitely there were some very challenging parts too. Mm-hmm. So let's jump back to the finish. Now, on, on reaching John O'Groats, I mean, you're clearly emotional. What is it like on the days and the weeks after those two months that you spent paddling? You must have literally felt like a fish out of water. Yeah, I, I did. I think that's a really good description of it, actually. Um, the first few days, I was waking up with nightmares in the middle of the night every day that um, I was having this recurring dream that I was still 10 miles from John O'Groats and I hadn't quite finished it. And I'd wake up in like a cold sweat, like, oh my God, I gotta get back on the water and do the last 10 miles. Um, and it just felt very surreal and ridiculously. So um, James was up there with me when I finished at John O'Groats. And two, or th- I think maybe three or four days after I'd finished at John O'Groats, he had to be in Land's End for work. So he basically drove my camper van from John O'Groats to Land's End in two days, what it had taken me two months to paddle. And it just felt so surreal. It felt like nothing had ever happened. I felt just completely lost. And those months following the paddle, I actually slipped into quite a deep depression. Um, And I'd, I'd never been depressed before. And I found it so hard because for, for two months I'd basically had purpose and I'd had endorphins and I'd had drive and I'd had this sense of achievement at the end of every day. And then I went from that to this um, state of being completely exhausted and I'd put my body through so much to get to John O'Groats and I had this massive, massive physical debt to pay back. But also uh, I, I was still grieving for, for the loss of my friend and um, I found it really, really hard. And kind of speaking to other athletes who've done um, big expeditions, it seems like the kind of post-adventure blues is is quite a quite a common phenomenon. Very common thing, yeah. yeah. But I, I, I found yeah, it really, common. really challenging. And it's definitely something that I factor into or I'm factoring into future things that I want to do is, is um, you know, making sure that I build in time for recovery and that maybe I don't push myself quite as hard. Because, you know, there were some days I was on the water for, there was one day I was on the water for about 20 hours and did something like 60 odd miles. And it's it was, I was basically constantly fighting that, that 
that weather window, constantly making the most of every second of good weather. Um, and it just so happened that the summer that I did it, the weather was phenomenal. So I had no opportunity to stop. And, you know, normally on expeditions, you'd have to take a couple of days off because there'd be a big storm or whatever. But I, I didn't really have that with, with this one. Wow. And yeah, talking about mileage per day, I mean, mm. 60 miles is a phenomenal distance. So what's, what were the sort of averages? That Obviously, it's very weather, highly weather-related and wind-related. Yeah, very, very weather-dependent. I'd say my sort of average was between 20 and 40 miles a day generally um so i i think a good a, a good number i'd aim for would be 20 miles and that's kind of that would be the figure i'd have in my head always um and there were a few days when i'd be paddling there was one day up on the exmoor coast i was paddling and i'd done i'd done the distance i thought i would do which was about 26 miles or something and i felt amazing and it was the most beautiful evening i just carried on just another 10 miles um just, <laughs> just, there were dolphins i just had the most amazing time then the next day i completely bonked i ran out of energy because i'd pushed too hard and hadn't eaten enough um but um yeah I'd, I'd say i was i was aiming for at least 20 miles a day some days i was able to do double that some days i was able to do significantly less um if if the weather window didn't allow it okay great and so let's talk a little bit about the film itself when when was it completed and it looks like you've had some awards for it as well so yeah. um so it was finished in March 2019, so just over a year ago. Um, and last year, I did a, a tour of the UK with the film um, My Bike, um, which was very, very different to a standard paddleboarding expedition. I think I'll stick to ocean-based expeditions from now on. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's been so phenomenally received. I've been very, very grateful for the support it's received. And it's won four awards, including Best Sup Film in the, the Paddling World Film Tour. Um, pad paddling, yeah, Paddling Film Festival World Tour. Um, the Water Walker uh, Film Festival won the Best Sup Award as well. Um, and it won a couple of um, documentary awards as well. So, yeah, it, it feels quite surreal sometimes when you get the, get the feedback from other people who've watched it. And um, the whole point of making the film, it, it wasn't just to kind of, um, it wasn't just to describe the journey. It, it, it was all around raising awareness around plastic pollution, but also around um, mental health and the importance of connecting to nature for our mental health and also for our, um, to, to drive us to want to, to protect our natural world. We're not going to do that unless we, unless we have that connection. So it feels feels very exciting to know that there are lots of people who've, who've watched it and enjoyed it and hopefully taken some of those messages on board as well. Excellent. Yeah. So where can people watch it? So it's on Vimeo On Demand at the moment. Um, it's been on since the start of lockdown. Uh, it, so if you head to my website, which is calmajor.com, there's a film section there and then just go to the vitamin C link. All the links are on there to, to watch it online. Excellent. So you can see both films as well. Yes. Sky's the Limit and Vitamin C. Yes. Okay, so let's chat a little bit. Thank you for that. Um, let's chat a little bit about the environment quickly. So how positive are you that we will actually ever live in harmony with nature and eradicate pollution from our planet? Um, I am very positive. I'm, I'm a perpetual optimist. And I think that I think it's really important to find ways to stay positive. And I think the way you stay positive is by taking action um, rather than it's very easy to become overwhelmed, isn't it? By the, the, the gravity of the situations that, that we find ourselves in, find ourselves in. Um, but I always try and look for the positives and, and certainly with the plastic pollution crisis, there's so much that we can learn from that um, and translate to other crises as well. And obviously they're all related, but by that, I mean, 
even in the few years that we've been trying to tackle plastic pollution, um, we've seen communities come together. We've seen amazing action happen. We've seen beach cleans become an everyday occurrence. Um, companies now stepping up to to change their business models so that they're using less plastic. Um, and I think it's a bit of a slow burner, and it will be a slow burner. But um, I do feel confident that 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 change is happening and change is happening in the right direction. I think my the the barrier to to this change, I think, is that disconnect that we have as a society from our natural world. So our lives at the moment, through you know decades of societal development, technological development, just the way we live is very very disconnected from our natural world in general compared to how you know our brains have been been developed to live and I think that's responsible for a lot of mental health struggle but I think it's also responsible for a lot of the apathy we see towards the environmental crises um and so I really think that the first crucial step is helping people to reconnect to nature and and to finding a meaningful relationship with nature that then drives them to want to protect it um and I'm currently setting up a charity to try and to try and do just that which is is very exciting um but in terms of being positive, yeah, I, I think it's very easy to, 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 to feel very negative and overwhelmed. But actually, um, to tackle that, taking small actions, doing something that makes you feel like you're able to make a difference, connecting to, to your community and connecting back to nature can be very, very powerful to help nurture that positivity. And we need as many positive healthy happy people to be a part of this environment environmental movement as, as possible and so i think the whole you know mental health environmentalism the whole thing is so interconnected it just requires a, mm-hmm. a, a yeah a reconnection to to our natural world but i mean you're so absolutely right about that connection with nature because when i i mean i had i have i also started paddling about six or seven years ago mm-hmm. and then i was out and about and paddling up in the rivers of portugal and also around the coast and just seeing the amount of pollution yeah it really opened my eyes and you're right that connection if you don't have it, you just put it in the bin and it goes away and no one cares. Exactly. Um, and that's why I think it's so exciting to see so many water users being part of these um, movements as well. You know, it, over the last few years, we've seen so many stand-up paddleboarders doing um, paddleboarding pickups or really, really using their voice as, as water lovers, as, as ocean lovers to, to help progress the campaign. And I think we have a very unique position in that regard in that, yes, we can see it. We can see it there and we can be angered by it because that's our playground. But we are also so um, able to do something about it. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting time, I think. Oh, excellent. Well, um, Cal, thanks so much for talking to us. Really, really do appreciate it. But what's what's next for you? Um, so first of all, uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me along. Um, <laughs> and um, what's next? Well, I had a few a few expeditions <laughs> planned for this year, a couple of mini ones and then a rather big one. But I'm, I'm just kind of putting them on the back burner for the minute since I'm currently not even able to go for a swim in the sea, let alone paddle. <laughs> um, so I'm concentrating on setting up the charity. Um, we're still finalising the name of the charity, but as I said before, it's all about connection to, to our natural world. Um, and I'm writing a book, which is, I'm really enjoying the process of writing, but finding it hard not to get distracted. So maybe lockdown is a good thing for me right now. <laughs> What's the book about? Uh, it, it's about um, about my expeditions and um, the film. It's just over an hour long, the, the vitamin C film. It's an hour long and I, I love the film. I love how it portrays the amazing, beautiful UK coastline. And there's, that's something that I couldn't really do in a book, but it doesn't, quite go into all the depths surrounding mental health and grief and um and there's so there are so many parallels that could be drawn between grief and 
paddleboarding and so it's a, 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 I suppose the genre will be a memoir it sounds a bit weird to say I'm writing a memoir um, but that's basically what it is it's a it's an account of my my journey so far and, and hopefully it'll help to, to help to inspire people I'm sure it will I'm sure it will um, so you. where can we follow you online and get any updates of, of what's happening with you so I mostly use Instagram because I like pretty pictures um, which is at cal underscore major um also on facebook if you just just search cal major paddle against plastic um and twitter as well if you just search cal major and my website is calmajor.com and that has all the film links and everything on there fantastic thanks carl really great to speak to you thank you so much thanks nick well thank you so much for listening to yet another episode of the sup fm podcast both simon and i really appreciate it and, and how we're we doing this is he's doing his podcasts I'm doing my podcasts and uh, we get together on a weekly basis online just to chat about how, how it's all going. Um, but we obviously want to make SAP FM a lot bigger and a lot broader. And there's lots of ideas at this stage. I mean, we're taking it easy because we're starting slowly. But there's so many cool ideas that um, we've decided to start a club on Patreon um, where if you really like the stuff, you can come and support us and uh, we'll give you some benefits. So you can check that out on patreon.com forward slash SAPFM. It's just a way for uh, you to be able to give back to us because obviously you know this is a lot of hard work and, and uh, it's difficult times right now so we would really appreciate any assistance possible but we also want to have a lot of fun and um, I've been looking at something and we may or may not do this but because we're all paddlers um, it would be great to do some kind of challenges using a platform like Strava so we've signed up for a Strava club and um, you can come and join us We'll leave all the details in the show notes on www.supfm.show. So see you there, and thanks again. See you next week. Thank you for listening to SupFM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.